Welcome to New Books in Secularism. This is your hostess, Annie Sibukaya, and today we are talking to Greta Christina, author of the new book, Why Are You Atheists So Angry? 99 Things That Piss Off the Godless. This book is available now in digital format on Amazon and on Smashwords, and will be coming out in print in July of 2012. Greta Christina is a popular atheist blogger. Her blog, named Greta Christina's blog, is on freethoughtblogs.com slash Greta, where she writes on atheism, sexuality, sex positivity, LGBT issues, and other subjects. She's on the Speakers Bureau of the Secular Student Alliance and the Center for Inquiry. Her writing has appeared in numerous magazines and newspapers, and we are delighted to have her on the show today. Good morning, Greta. Good morning. Okay, today we're talking about your book, Why Are You Atheists So Angry? 99 Things That Piss Off the Godless. Uh, to start with, could you tell us about why you decided to write this book? Uh, why I decided to write this book? Uh, so several years ago, back in, I believe, 2007, uh, I wrote a blog post called Atheists in Anger. And specifically, I was trying to answer this question that a lot of people have been asking about atheists and especially the so-called new atheist movement. You know, when people, you know, hear about it, when they read about it, a lot of what they notice is, gee, there's a lot of really angry atheists. Why is that? And they ask this question, gee, why are you atheists so angry? And they often ask it in this kind of obnoxious way, to be blunt about it. They ask it in this way that assumes that the answer is there's something wrong with us, that there's something wrong with atheists that we're angry, that we're, that we're depressed, that we're unhappy, that we're bitter, that we're joyless, you know, that we don't have God in our lives or whatever. And it's often not occurred to people that the reason that many atheists are angry is that we have legitimate things to be angry about. And so I wrote this blog post in 2007 uh, called Atheist in Anger. It kind of went crazy viral all over the Internet. And uh, and it's still, to this date, the, by far the most widely read piece that I've written on my blog. And I was like, okay, there's clearly something here. There's clearly, you know, this is really hitting a nerve. It's hitting a nerve with atheists. A lot of atheists reacted to this piece by saying, you said everything that I've been wanting to say and haven't been able to. And I thought, okay, there's clearly, there's clearly a desire to have these ideas expressed and to have these ideas voiced. And so I was like, okay, clearly there's a book in this. And I had originally was trying to go the mainstream publishing route and was not not able to get any traction with mainstream publishers, and I finally just decided to self-publish. And it's actually been very successful. It's it's, it's been doing really well so far. So, um, so yeah. So I think that, and I wrote the book kind of for two audiences. And I wrote the book for atheists because there's a lot of atheists who feel that you know that they do have all this anger and are being targeted for it, are being criticized for being angry and feel like they want a voice. They want somebody to, you know, who's a you know experienced writer who's good at putting words onto paper, uh, to express this anger and to put you know to put it into words. And then I also wrote it for believers who are interested in atheism. You know, atheism has been getting a lot of attention, it's been getting a lot of media, uh, a lot of people are talking about it, and there's a lot of believers who are sincerely interested and sincerely puzzled by this phenomenon, by the phenomenon of atheism and also by the phenomenon of angry atheism. 
and I'm trying to communicate to those people, you know, this, this is who we are and, you know, this is why we feel, you know, the way we do, or, or why I should say why so many of us feel the way they do, the way, the way we do, because I don't, I don't presume to speak for all atheists. Right. Um, well, you actually talk about how a lot of people see anger as a negative thing, but you said that it's actually very important in social movements. Uh, yes, I definitely think. No, I, I think that it's it's. I'm not going to say that anger is always a positive thing. I think that anger can be difficult. It can be dangerous. Um, you know, it can lead people to not think clearly and so on. Uh, but anger is a hugely important emotion. Anger is what lets us know that there's something wrong with the world. And, you know, it lets us know that people are being harmed. It lets us know that there's justice, you know, that, that there's injustice being done. Uh, you know, anger is how we know that things aren't right. It's how we know that things are, that wrongs are being done to us and how wrongs are that wrongs are being done to other people. And, you know, it's and it's what motivates us to do something about it. And and when you look at the history of pretty much every social change movement that I'm aware of, you know, when you look at the history of the LGBT movement, of the women's movement, of the civil rights movement, you know, the labor movement and so on, you see that all of these movements are driven to a large part by a great deal of anger. You know, anger, again, at injustice and anger at harm that's being done and anger over, over helplessness and over, over feeling powerless. And to a great extent, you know, feeling anger and deciding to act on that anger is what makes people feel powerful. It's what makes people feel, okay, I can do something about this. And so I do think that, you know, people talk about anger as if it's this, you know, tremendously, you know, horrible negative emotion. And, of course, if your life is constantly consumed by anger every second of every day, you know, that's a problem. But but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, reasonable, legitimate, appropriate anger over, you know, really bad things that are happening in the world. And, um, you know, and, and I think that there's something really, this is something I talk about in the book, but it's often assumed that anger is a selfish emotion, that, that you know, your anger when, you know, that, that, that anger means being whiny or that it means, you know, being self-involved and so on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that when you talk with atheists about, you know, why are you angry about religion? What is it about religion that makes you angry? A lot of the things that we talk about aren't things that are being done to atheists. You know, a certain amount of it is about that. A certain amount of it is about, you know, bigotry and discrimination against atheists. And that's and there is there is real discrimination against atheists. There's things like, you know, atheists losing their jobs and atheists getting custody of their children denied to them. You know, atheists, uh, students in high schools being denied the right to organize groups and so on. You know, there is real harm that's being done to atheists, and it's it's legitimate that we should be angry about that. But when you ask atheists, why are you angry about religion? A lot of times, most of the time, in fact, I would say, uh, the, the answers that they give aren't about a harm that's being done to atheists. It's about harm that believers are doing to other believers. You know, it's things like, you know, they say, you know, I'm angry because, you know, little girls are getting their clitorises cut off because there are religions that are demanding that. And, you know, I'm angry that, you know, Mormon teenagers are being kicked out of their homes by their families. And, you know, I'm angry about what's happening with the quiverful families and, you know, these women and these extreme fundamentalist Christian you know, cults essentially who are being, you know, you know, for not forced exactly, but who are being expected and pressured to, you know, to bear as many children as their bodies possibly can, even if they don't want to, and even, you know, if you know the the, the children are being brought up in misery and and you know and and the women are in misery, you know, they you know they talk about things like. 
you know, with you know, children being raped by priests and the Catholic Church covering it up. And, you know, they talk about, you know, women, you know, women who are in abusive marriages being told by their priests or their preachers or ministers to stay in the marriage because, you know, God requires it. I mean, that's the kind of thing that atheists get angry about. And it, so our anger, a tremendous amount of our anger is anger on other people's behalf. It's, it's not this sort of anger, self-righteous anger at things that are being done to us entirely. That's some of it, and that's valid, but a lot of it comes from compassion, and it comes from a sense of justice, and it comes from you know, the sense of, of wanting the world to be a better place than it is. Um, right. You know, it's, 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 you know, one of the things I say in the book is wrong with us. Atheists are angry because there's something right with us. You know, we're angry because we care about other people. Right. Um, and on that note, you would um, definitely argue against, because a lot of people think that morality comes from God, and um, so you would very much argue against that. Yeah, I think that that's clearly not true. Um, I mean, for one thing, you know, you don't see, you know, people say, oh, you need religion to, to, to be moral. Well, for one thing, a lot of religious believers behave really immorally. You know, it's, it's, you, know you open up the newspaper and you see, you know, practically every week there's some new story about, um, you know, religious leaders who are, you know, you know, defrauding their parishioners or taking sexual advantage of their followers, you know, the, the you know, Ted Haggard kind of situation. Uh, you read stories again about the Catholic Church, you know, doing some other horrible action, you know, to cover up the fact that priests were raping children. There was just a story in the news a couple of weeks ago about um, how uh, a Catholic diocese was, was paying off, basically paying off priests and paying them this huge sums of money uh, to get them to leave the church so that they didn't have, and, and, you know, so they didn't have to actually go through the process of, you know, hey, calling the police and, and you know, embarrassing the church. Uh, they just were trying to get them to leave quietly, and they were essentially paying them hush money. I mean, you know, you know, clearly religion does not make people behave morally. Um, and there's no evidence that atheists behave any more immorally than uh, religious people. You know, there's no evidence that atheists, you know, commit crimes at any greater rate, actually, uh, and this is probably more for sociological and economic reasons than anything else, but uh, atheists are very underrepresented in jails and prisons. Uh, there's a very low rate of atheists in prisons. And I'm not saying that that's because atheists are inherently, you know, more, more, more moral people, but we're not less moral. Um, and there's actually quite a bit of evidence that morality is something that we evolved with, that, that morality is something that social animals uh, evolved with as a way of functioning as a social species. You know, and you see, you know, there's lots of evidence for morality and ethics and altruism in social animals other than people. You know, if you just go to Google and you Google animal altruism or animal ethics, you see lots of research showing that um, that other primates, that, that dogs, that even animals um, like rats. Um, what was the study? There was a study showing that, um, you know those rat studies where, uh, you know, they put a rat in a cage and, you know, if they press press the lever and, you know, they get a drop of water and, and so on. You know, yeah. not a drop of water, like a drop sure. of sugar water. Yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, you, you um, and they did, uh, and this is to see what rats, you know, how they can learn and what they will and won't do. And what they found was that if a rat had to press a lever to get fed and that lever caused an electric shock to another rat, the rat won't do it. The rat will go very, very long time uh, 
and will get will will go hungry, will essentially almost starve itself to death before it will hurt another rat um, just to get fed. And you know, so clearly, you know, morality and altruism, these are things that evolved. They're they're not gifts from God. They're something that evolved in us as a social species. And, and you know, and there's some people I think who see that as that, that somehow that takes away from it, that, that somehow if it's not given to us by God, if it's just this, you know, natural instinct that, that evolved in us, you know, just, you know, you know, physical cause and effect and, you know, bio, in biology. There's some people who think that that's depressing or that that's sad. Um, I don't see it that way at all. I actually see that as kind of magnificent. I mean, to me, you know, I look at this idea that that living beings evolved. You know, we started off on this planet as just, there was like the earth and there was water and there was the sun. And out of that, these, you know, this chemical process turned into this biological process of life. And that life evolved, you know, not just to be alive and not just to survive and reproduce, but that life evolved to get consciousness. And that life evolved to get a kind of consciousness that wasn't just aware of itself, but that was aware of other conscious beings. And, and, you know, life evolved from, again, from rocks and water and sunlight, you know, we evolved compassion and we evolved joy and we evolved this ability to not just have consciousness of ourselves, but to have consciousness of one another and to connect with one another. That's amazing. I don't see that as depressing at all. I see that as just completely freaking magnificent. (laughs) Yeah, you um you you say in your book that um that not only does morality not come from God as you talked about, but that religion is actually uniquely harmful in the world. Um, why is it uniquely harmful? Well, I do think that religion is uniquely harmful in the world, and it's not that I think that atheists are morally superior to religious believers. I don't think that. I I, I think that you know we all we all have a moral compass and so on. I, I don't think that. Um, you know, I don't think that atheists are, are better human beings than religious believers, but what I do think is that religion is a uniquely bad idea. That you know, uni- religion is, is a it's a hypothesis about the world, and it's a uniquely bad one. And the reason why I think it's a uniquely harmful idea is that there's no reality check on it. That religion, by definition, it's a belief in things that are invisible, and it's invisible beings and inaudible voices and these intangible forces. You know, events that happen after we die and we can't say for sure what happens one way or the other and and because of that there's no reality check on it there's no way of you know saying for sure you know what god does or doesn't want you know because you know there's you know thousands of different religious beliefs and religious sects uh, all saying a different thing about what god does and doesn't want and none of them has any evidence to back up why their particular religion is the right one why their particular rules about god about what god wants from us are the right ones and so as a result there's no reality check on it that when people get get some idea in their head about what you know for you know an example of this you know people get this idea in their head that uh, homosexuality and same-sex relationships are immoral. Um, now, if you're basing that idea just on, you know, ordinary human ethics and ordinary human reality, it's pretty easy to show that that isn't true. You know, all you need to do is look around you. You look at, at gay people and you look at gay relationships and gay families and you see, you know, you can do research on it and a tremendous amount of research has been done on same-sex couples and same-sex families and so on, showing that actually, no, these people are just as happy as, as anybody else and, you know, they function as members of society just as well as anybody else. You know, so if you're basing your morality on the real world, 
you know, you can, you, you can change your mind about these things. But because so much of the hostility towards uh, gay people and towards same-sex relationships comes from religion and is driven by religion, is driven by the, this idea that God hates gay people and God doesn't want people to, to have gay sex. Therefore, well, there's no proving that. There's no evidence one way or the other that, that about what God does and doesn't want. And so this reality check that, you know, gee, I don't like gay people, but I'm looking around me and, you know, gay people seem to be okay, that gets shot in the foot. That gets just, you know, basically trumped by what God supposedly wants. And so, again, there's no reality check on religion. And so it forms, it's, it's, it's a uniquely stubborn rationalization for people doing really terrible things and for people being being bigoted and hateful and violent. Um, could you explain what cherry picking is when it comes to religion and a part that I found really fascinating in your book, um, how you think that liberal religious people are just as guilty of it as conservative religious people? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, so cherry picking is uh, something that, and to some extent, it's 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 a common human trait. You know, we all do it. We all, uh, you know, when we you know we all we have ideas in our minds, we have beliefs that we already hold, and we, you know, focus on evidence that supports those beliefs, and we ignore evidence that contradicts those beliefs. It's a human psychological trait. You know, rationalization. Uh, we all do it. Um, uh, the particular religious cherry picking uh, means that you know if you have a religious text, let's say the Bible, to you know, use the most obvious example, um, religious believers will pick the verses and texts from the Bible that support their interpretation of what they think the Bible should say, and they'll ignore the texts that uh, that contradict it. You know, and, you know, a, a good example of that. And the thing is, you know the you know, the Bible contradicts itself all over the place. You know, the Bible has, you know, if you go online and go to a website called the Skeptic's Bible, uh, it, it actually documents all the different places where the Bible is, you know, not just inaccurate and horrible, but where it's internally contradictory. Um, you know, and and so people will choose the parts of the Bible that support what they believe or what they want to believe or what their preacher t- tells them or what they were, the, the version they were brought up with as children. You know, for instance, there are some, you know, versions of Christianity that are very, to use the, you know, the example that we're already talking about, that are very homophobic and that are very hostile towards gay people. And they will, you know, pick out the verses in Leviticus that say, you know, man shall not lie with man as he lies with woman. It's an abomination. Uh, well, they very conveniently leave out the parts of the Bible, you know, and that's in the, that same book in Leviticus, I believe it is. Uh, that says that you're not supposed to eat shellfish and you're not supposed to wear blended fabrics and uh, that if your you know children commit uh, are disobedient you're supposed to kill them and that you're supposed to stone adulterers and so on. You know people are even people who say that they're biblical literists, um, literalists, excuse me, even people who say that they're fundamentalists. You know they cherry pick all the time. Nobody really obeys everything that the Bible says, tells them to do, because it's, it's literally impossible because it contradicts itself. 
Um, and so, you know, so people do, you know, there, there, there's this idea that people who are hateful or so on, you know, who are hateful or bigoted, that they're not true Christians. It's not true Christianity. You know, that the, the true message of Christianity is, is love and brotherhood and compassion. Well, certainly there's a lot in the New Testament about love and brotherhood and compassion, but there's also a lot of really screwed up stuff in the New Testament. If you just look at the four Gospels, uh, there's stuff about how if you don't believe in the Holy Spirit, you're going to be condemned to hell for eternity. It's an unforgivable sin. Uh, there's stuff in the New Testament about how um, if you, there's lots of stuff about how if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then, you, then you're condemned. Um, there's stuff about how you're supposed to uh, abandon your family and friends in order to, you know, to follow Jesus Christ. Um, you know, there's all the stuff about I don't come to bring peace, I come to bring the sword. You know, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of really ugly stuff in the New Testament as well as some really beautiful stuff. And people who want to say, oh, well, the people who are hateful, they're not true Christians. Well, they don't have any better idea. You know, they don't have any reason to, you know, to support this assertion that they know what God wants and they know what Jesus Christ wants. Um, you know, they're just picking the good parts. And I agree with them about what the good parts are. I think that the, you know, that the stuff about love and brotherhood and so on is awesome. But they don't really have any better reason for thinking that they have the true version of Christianity than anybody else. Hmm. And on that note, um, why do you think that the argument that religion is useful, which a lot of people use, like, well, okay, you know, the Bible has some bad parts and so forth, but religion brings people together and, you know, helps community building and that kind of thing. Why do you think it's a terrible argument? Oh, there's so many reasons why that's a terrible argument. <laughs> um, uh, I, could, I mean, we could have a whole interview about that. Uh, well, there's two main things. First of all, we should not be basing what we think is true on what we want to be true, on what we find useful to be true. You know, we need to care about the truth. Caring about the truth is important. Um, and, you know, there's, there's moral reasons why caring about the truth is important. We need to know what's true about the world in order to understand how, how to act in it. Um, a, a good example of this, my friend uh, and colleague uh, J.T. Eberhard, uh, who writes for the What Would J.T. Do uh, blog, and he works for the Secular Student Alliance, and he does a lot of public speaking, and he gives this talk about why reason is a moral obligation. And the example he uses is people who believe in faith healing. And, you know, there's people who have let their children horribly suffer and die from treatable illnesses because they believed that, that, that prayer would cure their child and that God didn't want them to take their child to the doctor. I mean, that's a horrible thing to do. That's a monstrously immoral thing to do, to let your child suffer from a horrible, treatable disease and die from it. Um, you know, but because they had this incorrect belief that, you know, prayer would treat their child, you know, they behaved in this really monstrous way. So it's important for us to understand how the world really works and to care about how the real world really works so that we know how to act in it, you know, so that we know that we're doing the right thing and that our actions will, ha will have a better chance of having the consequences, you know, that, that we want. So, so it's, it, so that's the first thing that I would say is, we, you know, you really just can't say, I'm going to believe that this is true because I really want it to be true and because it's useful that it's true. You know, an analogy that I make in the book is Santa Claus. You know, it's, you know, so there's millions of children in the world who believe in Santa Claus and they probably, you know, believing in Santa Claus makes them happy and uh, believing in Santa Claus probably makes them behave better, at least during the month of December. Um, 
but we don't say that therefore we should keep believing in Santa Claus for the rest of our lives just because it's it, it's it, the belief makes kids happy and because it somewhat has some utility in making them behave better. You know, we we think that there's a point at which we grow up and there's a point at which we say you know, we're not going to believe in something that there's no good reason to think is true just because it makes us happy. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, to me, this idea that you should believe something that that you don't have any reason to think is true just because you find it useful, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of, it's almost laughable in the face of it. We wouldn't say it about anything else other than religion. And I think that it's a good example of how religion kind of gets this free ride in our society. Religion gets a special treatment. It gets cut slack that no other kind of idea would ever get. Nobody would ever say uh, that you should believe in Santa Claus, you know, again, uh, because it's useful, but they are perfectly happy to say that you should believe in God because it's useful. Um, and the other thing that I think is really important to point out about that is there's no actual good evidence to show that religion is ultimately all that useful. Uh, when you look at countries where they're beginning to let go of religion, uh, there's a lot of countries in Europe, uh, Germany and France and England, uh, the Scandinavian countries, Holland. There's a lot of countries where rates of religious belief are just plummeting, uh, where the rates of non-belief are 50% or higher. And these countries are doing very well. You know, they're certainly doing as well as, as we are in the United States and in many ways better. Um, and, you know, they so this idea that you need religion in order to be happy and to live a moral life, it, it's just clearly not the case. Um, you know, it's true that, you know, as a society, we have built a lot of social support structures and communities and so on around religion. But that's just because we've been, you know, we've, a society that's believed in religion for thousands of years, and we also therefore we've we ha we've happened to have organized ourselves around religion. But as a society lets go of religion, it's not like it collapses into chaos. A, the societies that let go of religion actually seem to do pretty well. Okay, um, that's interesting. What about the argument that atheism is for the privileged, which is another thing that we hear often that uh, atheists. It's easy for atheists not to believe in God because we've never really been through anything horrible. And the people that, you know, people who live in Africa or whatever are less likely to be atheists because they have a more difficult life. Um, well, there's a couple of different responses to that. I mean, certainly, you know, when you look at it sociologically, it does certainly seem to be the case that uh, people who live in societies that are not as functional, you know, where the economy is bad, where there's, you know, a lot of social injustice, where there's a lot of oppression, where there's a lot of violence, where there's a lot of crime and so on, uh, those countries do seem to have higher rates of religion. Um, but, but, you know, to me, that's not an argument for, you know, not trying to persuade people out of religion. That's an argument for trying to make society better uh, and trying to, you know, it's, it's, if it's the case that, you know, life in Africa is, is often really pretty horrible, um, th that's not a, an argument for, well, we should just therefore let everybody believe in God. That's an argument for let's try to make our life in Africa better. Um, and I also think that to a great extent, it's very insulting. It's very patronizing. There is this, 
you know, there is this idea that, oh, well, you know, the hoi polloi and the, the, the great unwashed, uneducated masses, they, they need religion. And I think that that's really insulting. You know, if you, there was a, a piece on uh, a blog that I read a lot called Daylight Atheism uh, that was called Atheist Janitors. And it was about this argument that, oh, well, you know, if you, you know, if you're, you know, educated upper middle class person, you don't need religion. But janitors, you know, need religion. And, and this, this was this atheist who was explaining why this was such a terrible argument. And there was the comment thread on that was flooded with people who are atheist janitors or other, you know, blue collar workers, poor people, and so on, who are saying, I find this really patronizing. I find this really insulting. You know, this idea that, oh, because, you know, because I'm a poor person or because I don't have a college education, you know, therefore I'm not able to think for myself and I'm not able to face reality and I just need to be, you know, kept pacified with, you know, pretty lies, it's really insulting. It's really patronizing. And I also think that it's, you know, it's insulting and patronizing to say, oh, well, um, you know, people who are, you know, comfortably middle class and college educated, you know, their lives are fine. They don't have anything wrong in their lives. And, you know, they don't, they don't need religion. And the example I'll give of that is my friend Rebecca Hensler, who is the founder of the Grief Beyond Belief support network. It's a support group on Facebook uh, that's a grief support group for people who don't have religious beliefs. And the reason she founded this group was that she had a child who died at three months old. You know, she had a child who was born with serious birth defects and uh, who didn't make it. And, you know, to, you know, to say that, you know, oh, gee, she hasn't suffered, um, you know, that's just really... You know that's really appalling. That's really insulting to me. You know to to say that, um, you know, you know that somebody who went through what she went through, uh, you know, wouldn't have the same need for comfort and for solace and for you know a way of looking at the world that makes sense of it. Um, you know, she she really went through it and she did go through it without having religious belief and. Um, you know, is still going through it, I should say, because grief is, you know, something that you don't ever really stop doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so to me, this idea that, you know, that, 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 oh, you always are going to need religion when life gets tough. Well, you know, a lot of atheists have been through some really tough stuff. Um, and, you know, some really hard times. It's, it's, you know, there's this idea that there's no atheist in foxholes. There are entire organizations of military atheists, um, I've, and, and they've been through it. You know, it's it, it, actually a lot of times I think, you know, experience of being in war uh, makes people let go of religion because they feel like, you know, if, if there's a God, God wouldn't allow this. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so this idea that, 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 that somehow atheists just are living these totally privileged, comfort, comforting, comfortable lives uh, without any suffering or any trauma or any difficulty. It's just really insulting. It's really patronizing. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the spiritual but not religious movement? Um, <laughs> I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure I would call it a movement exactly. Um, you know, sort of by definition, people who say that they're spiritual but not religious tend tend to not be very into organi- you know, organization. But, um, uh, well, so my feeling about people about the whole thing of being spiritual but not religious, um, you know, that that you know they have real people who have religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs, but they don't belong to any organized religion. I mean, certainly, I have less of a problem with that than I do with with more 
structured, organized religion, just because it's, you know, it's, it's not, you know, there's not an institution behind it. There's less capacity to do harm. But I still have tremendous problem with it. And, you know, mostly my main problem with it is that I still think it isn't true. You know, it's, you can say, oh, I'm spiritual but not religious, as if the only problem with religion was, you know, the dogma and the authority and the structure and so on. Well, that, that's all problematic, but the main problem with religion is that it isn't true that there's no reason to think that it's true. And so if you're going to say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious, I mean, yes, you're rejecting a lot of bad things by rejecting the organization of organized religion, but you're still hanging on to the core idea that there are supernatural beings and forces you know, that affect the, the, the physical world, and there's just no reason to think that. Um, and I do think that spiritual beliefs can do tremendous amount of harm, even if they aren't connected with organized religion. Uh, and the, the, my, the best example of that that I can think of is uh, I used to work in a birth control clinic, and uh, there was a woman who came into the clinic uh, seeking a cervical cap. And whenever people came into the clinic uh, looking for birth control, we would ask them, "What form of birth control are you using now?" You know, it's a way of you know keeping records and doing statistics and so on. And she said that the form of birth control she was using was visualization. You know, she said that she and her partner, when they had intercourse, would visualize a shield of protective white light covering her cervix and protecting her from pregnancy. And the reason why she was coming into the birth control clinic to get a cervical cap was not that she had decided that this was a ridiculous idea, um, but that she was afraid that unconsciously she wanted to get pregnant and that this would somehow make the visualization not work. Okay, so, so this is kind of a silly story in a lot of ways, but it's also a serious one. You know, unwanted pregnancy is no joke. You know, if you don't want to get pregnant and you get pregnant anyway, that's not, that, that, that's not a great thing. You know, that's something that's it's not good for you. It's not good for your partner. Um, you know, every, I think every child should be a wanted child. And, and if, you know, so this is somebody who didn't belong to any organized religion. She just had this spiritual belief in visualization, and yet she could potentially have done a great deal of harm to her life by not practicing birth control that actually, you know, might work. Um, and she was very lucky that she didn't get pregnant. Um, and, you know, and there's lo I can think of there's lots of examples of this, you know, from my own life. Um, I used to believe in all kinds of, I never was a traditional religious believer, but I had lots of beliefs in things like reincarnation and tarot cards and astrology and all that stuff. And I would make real decisions on my life uh, based on, you know, it's like I would do a tarot card reading and it would tell me that I should stay in this relationship. You know, you should really, you know, stick the course and, you know, stay with it, even though it was a really lousy relationship and I should have gotten out. Um, you know, I made decisions, you know, I, I made all kinds of decisions about my life based on these spiritual beliefs that were really bad decisions. And, you know, so, and again, it's because there's no reality check. You know, re, you know religion and spirituality really is a tremendously powerful force for encouraging you to believe whatever it is that you want to believe or whatever it is that you already believe or whatever you've been taught to believe. And it's it really disincentivizes, I guess is the word, um, questioning your prejudices and questioning your your uh, your assumptions and examining what what is the actual evidence about the situation, and you know, and even and that's true even if it's not organized religion. Right. 
do you sometimes feel like perhaps the people that state that they're spiritual but not religious, that it's a little bit of a protection because they're afraid of not being liked because it is so difficult to say I'm an atheist or to say I don't believe and somehow saying that you're spiritual but not religious makes you less threatening to other people? I think that may, that, that's a good question. Um, I think that may at least sometimes be true. Um, I think that there is a tremendous pressure in our society uh, to be religious. You know, re- religion operates largely by social consent. Um, it's something that it, it's propped up by this agreement that we're all going to encourage each other to be religious and we're all going to, you know, give a big thumbs up to religion and not question it very hard. It basically, it operates by social consent because uh, there's no other real evidence to support it. Um, but, and so therefore, there is a tremendous pressure against people uh, saying that they're not religious. I mean, you look at the, the bigotry and hostility that a lot of atheists get faced with uh, when they come out as atheists. And so, yes, I do think that uh, the people who say they're spiritual but not religious or, you know, oh, they worship in their own way or whatever, um, I, I, I do think some of them are sincere. I know that some of them are sincere. I was one of those people myself. Uh, but I do think it's possible that some of them are privately having real doubts or privately don't believe and just feel like they can't come out, feel like they can't say that they're not religious because there's going to be pushback. And that's another reason why I do think it's that the atheist movement is so important. I think it's so important for atheists to to be visible about our atheism to the greatest degree that we can uh, so that you know, we can kind of push back against that that social consent. You know, every person who says the emperor has no clothes makes it easier for the next person to say, gee, look, the emperor looks pretty naked to me too. Um, and uh, and as we form communities that provide the kinds of social uh, support that religion provides, uh, you know, that also helps people who are having doubts or who privately don't believe and feel like they can't say anything. Uh, that makes it easier for those people as well. So, um, so yes, I do think that there may be a certain amount of um, uh, that there's a lot of people who aren't really religious, but who don't feel like they can say that. Um, uh, David Silverman, who's the president of American Atheists, uh, he talks about this a lot. He talks about this phenomenon of atheists in the pews, of people who privately don't believe but are, you know, in you know, saying, oh, I'm spiritual but not religious, or I worship in my own way, or, or even in many cases going to church or going to temple or, or going to whatever house of worship they're expected to go to uh, because, again, of the social pressure. And so it's one of the reasons why I'm as excited as I am about the atheist movement and the atheist community is that I think that it's um, it's giving those people a, a home and making it easier for those people to to be honest. Mm. Yeah, and you, you say actually that coming out is one of the most important things that you can do as an atheist, is to just say, I don't believe in God. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was true. Uh, certainly, we found that in the LGBT movement and the LGBT community, that coming out is absolutely the single most powerful act that a, a gay person could take, because uh, that's what counters the myths that mm-hmm. are so prevalent about gay people and you know one one of the things that polls very consistently show is that people are much more likely to support gay rights when they know a gay person or rather when they know that they know a gay person because they probably do even if they don't um and i think that that's going to be true for atheists as well i think that uh there's a lot of myths about us and that as we come out of the closet uh people are um 
are, are going to realize that we're not monsters, that we don't have horns and hooves, that we don't eat babies, and so on. Um, and that we're, you know, that we're good people, that we're happy people, that we're functioning members of society and good citizens and so on. Um, and I also think that coming out as atheist has this other effect, which is that it helps change people's minds. You know, when people come out as gay, it's not, you know, it's not going to make straight people gay, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not. Um, but it's, it's going to certainly encourage people who are already gay to feel more comfortable being gay and to come out of the closet themselves. But it doesn't, you know change anybody's mind about whether they're straight. I do think that people coming out as atheist is likely to help change people's minds about religion. Again, I think that religion relies on social consent to perpetuate itself. It's it's the again, it's the emperor's new clothes. You know, nobody wants to be the first one to say, hey, there's not any good reason for this really. Um, and the more of us who come out and say I don't believe in God. That just by itself forces people to ask, well, why do I believe in God? And why do I believe the particular religion that I believe? Why do I believe the God that I do believe? You know, there's thousands of different religions. Why do I believe the one that I do? What, what reason is there to pick that one? And so I think that there's a tremendous snowball effect in coming out, that it makes people who are already atheists and are just private about it feel safer coming out and safer living an authentic life and it also, I think, is going to change people's minds about religion. Great. Um, related to that, um, and just to finish up, one of the things in the book that you state that annoys you the most is when atheists say, well, that's all well and good, but arguing with religious people doesn't work. Um, I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about that and about the blog and the work that you do. Sure, absolutely. This is this is actually one of my very favorite topics. Uh, so there is this idea that's very common in among atheists, which is that there's no point in trying to argue people out of religion because it never works. That 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 you know all of these books and all of these blogs and all of these Facebook debates and so on about religion. That there's no point that religious belief is just too entrenched. People hang on to it for emotional reasons and not rational ones. And there's no point in arguing with people about it. And I. I, I can I curse on the show? Absolutely. Okay, that's bullshit. <laughs> it's total, utter bullshit. Um, it's just simply not true. Um, and the reason I know this isn't true is if you take any sizable group of atheists and you ask them, what made you change your mind? If you used to believe in religion and now you're an atheist, what made you change your mind? Many of them will say that at least part of the reason they changed their mind was seeing arguments against religion was seeing atheist arguments. You know, they read the God delusion or they read God is not great or they read my blog and they read somebody else they read the Daylight Atheism blog or they read Ferengula or or they got into an argument with a friend on Facebook or they got into an argument with their cousin at, at you know on family vacation. And they it made them think about it. Now I think the reason why people think the arguments never work is that arguments almost never work right away. If you're trying to argue with somebody about religion, you're almost never going to start that argument with them being a strict believer and end that argument half an hour later with them saying, oh, wow, you've totally changed my mind. You know, I'm now an atheist. You're, you're, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. That, that rarely happens. Um, what it's more like is that arguments about religion are part of the process. You know, leaving religion, letting go of religious ideas, it's often an ongoing process. It can take, you know, it can take weeks, it can take months, it can take years. And it's not something that happens overnight, and it's often something where a lot of different pieces for, are, are part of the puzzle. You know, they'll 
people will start reading the Bible and start having questions about it and going, wow, this is like full of contradictions and it's full of some really horrible stuff and why do I believe this? And then they'll go to their religious leader, they'll go to their minister and, and try to get answers to these questions and they won't get good answers so they'll be told that asking questions is a sin. And, and then they'll start reading about atheism and they'll start reading the books and the blogs and so on and then that's part of the process and then they start talking to other people and they start thinking about it. It's that the arguments are part of the process. They're rarely the whole picture and it really happens overnight. Um, and, but that doesn't mean that, they're not, that it's not useful. Um, it, it is very useful. It, it's very effective. Again, ask you know, any group of atheists what changed your mind about religion and you'll find that for a lot of people Arguments about religion is part of what changed their mind. It just didn't happen overnight, and it wasn't the whole picture. Right. Yeah, terrific. Um, so your book um, actually has a whole list of associations, organizations about people who are interested and, and so forth, right? Absolutely. There's an extensive resource guide in the back of the book. It's it's not complete by any stretch of the imagination, but it's very extensive. It's a book, a list of, you know, organizations, support groups, online forums, online discussion groups, blogs, books, and so on, where you can get more information. There's a huge amount of information about atheism in the world. And, um, you know, and, and, and there's, you know, the, the resource guide in the back of my book is really just scratching the surface. Okay. So your book is available on Kindle already on Amazon, right? Um, is it coming out in print soon, or are you not sure about that yet? It, it is coming out in print soon. It's currently available on Kindle on Amazon. It's available on Nook through Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's available in an assortment of different formats through Smashwords. Um, and it's coming out in print. Uh, it was going to be June. I think it's probably looking more like early July. Uh, but it is coming out in print uh, through Pitchstone Press. I'll be announcing it on my blog and, you know, all the usual places, Facebook and Twitter and so on. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Greta. It was really great to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. You have been listening to an interview with Greta Christina, author of Why Are You Atheists So Angry? 99 Things That Piss Off the Godless. This is your host, Danny Sepukaya. Thank you for listening.